Good evening, listeners. It's January 27th, 2019, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Kristen Finch. And I'm Maggie Exton. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests, and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight we are joined by Gina Moody, a master's student from Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies in the College of Liberal Arts. Gina is studying the effect of gendered language on perception with her advisor, Bradley, Bradley Boovey. Hey, Gina. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Glad you're here. Uh, so what do you mean by what is gendered language? What are we talking about here? Well, mostly I'm talking about the ways in which people are trying to correct or enforce gender by using gendered language. A really common and well-known one would be boys will be boys. Um, people will say that a lot to like excuse uh, gendered ways people are behaving, if that makes sense. Right. Are any other examples you can... I'm sure there's so many. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> there's so many. I think uh, a couple others that I wrote down were like, don't throw like a girl. Um, another one would be like, sit like a lady. Um, and then, of course, I think a lot about swear words, but we yes. can't talk about that so much. <laughs> so I'm trying to limit it to these kind of phrases that people will use, especially in childhood, but I think a lot um later when people start growing up to say like oh women don't do that or men don't do that and try and enforce kind of specific gendered ways people should behave yeah like good girl yeah that's right. one. I after we talked earlier this week i was thinking of all of just in my everyday language how much it just comes up and i don't even realize right yeah right and as you said some of the swear words are very gendered that we cannot say because we are live on the radio and that is not allowed uh, during this hour. But uh, so how are you studying the effects of these words and phrases on on people? Yeah, mostly I'm just asking people um, to tell me stories about when they've had these um, types of experiences, who's who said these things to them, if they've ever used um, words like this or phrases like this to... And, and what was the purpose of that? Um, I think that we could even say the word sissy on air, probably. So um, I'm thinking about, you know, when younger kids are saying, don't be such a sissy. Like, mm -hmm. what are they actually trying to imply by saying that? Are they trying to say, like, don't act like a girl? Are they trying to say, don't act homosexual? What, what are they trying to say by, by actually using that? So I'm trying to dig into the roots of it um, in that way, purely based on experience and um, intentions. Yeah. So how do you, you're saying you're collecting stories yeah. and you want to hear these stories. How do you, how do you do that? Mostly I'm just asking people, 
have you had a phrase like this said to you? Um, some of the examples I give are going to be either swear words. Have you had these gendered swear words thrown at you? Um, have you had somebody say you're acting too girly or acting, you should be acting more manly? You know, what are, what are these types of ways in which people are um, saying whatever gendered uh, performance you're putting on is not appropriate or is appropriate for this situation or scenario. Um, and I think that, like I said, a lot of this comes from childhood, but then there's a lot in work situations. There's a lot in school. Um, you know, maybe girls shouldn't be good at math, and so they're often overlooked. So I'm trying to think of the ways in which language um, is contributing to disparities between genders, and especially in the intention that it is making gender uh, binary as well, to say that you have to be this way or you have to be this way and there is no in-between. Mm-hmm. And no. that it's bad to be in-between or bad to be right. the opposite of how you maybe appear. Or that I, there's no place. Right. Yeah. Right. That there's no place. And I think that especially um, terms like don't throw like a girl if you're saying that to a boy, it's really saying, like, you need to perform in these expected ways of being a boy. And if you're not doing that, then you are a girl. There is no other place or category for you to fall into. Yeah. And so some of the questions on your survey, uh, one of the methods that you're using to get some of the, or to take some of these stories down is to ask questions also about kind of the setting of when these things happen. So what are you looking for in that case? I'm looking for basically what are the power dynamics that went into this. So the setting could be at work, at school, in a peer group, um, in family. You know, who was, who was the person um, that was saying these things and did they have a certain influence or power over you saying that to you? I think that that you know, not all experiences are equal. And I think that if it's your dad saying it versus some dude on the street saying it, um, it's going to have a different impact. So I'm going to weigh those things a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. And then you also have in-person interviews where you'll kind of, I guess, get to dig a little bit deeper. It won't just be a supply answer type of thing. You'll get to ask follow-up questions. Right, exactly. The questions are going to be very similar to the survey, but there's just going to be a lot more room for it to go where uh, the participant wants it to go. So if you really want to talk about that one experience you had in eighth grade and talk about all of the situation that led up to that or um, talk about how you're feeling about that now, if it's actually shaped the way you present your gender and you live your gender, um, that's where we can go with that. Or if you just want to talk about how you hate it when that happens, that's also great. Um, (laughs) So it's just going to be a little bit more free form to be able to speak longer about those experiences um, and see see what comes out of that. So who are you seeking for to participate in your in your research? What what's the demographic or the demographic is anyone. Um, they have to speak English because I speak English and I'm working with uh, writing my, my thesis in English, um, so translating would not work very well. And they have to be over the age of 18 or the age of um, majority in their state of residence. Um, so other than that, it's really open because I'm really trying to capture um, 
anyone, men, women, non-binary folks, trans folks. Um, and then people, especially here in Oregon, I know it's majority white, but it would be nice to have other people outside of that or outside of kind of normative experiences um, come into play. Because I think that all of these things are interconnected if you think about the ways in which racism and sexism and homophobia are all interconnected to each other. I think they kind of compound and um, contribute to the ways in which we expect people to behave in their gender, if that makes sense. So before we move on, can you give the definition of gender, what you mean uh, in this case? In this case, I mean how you perform and present to people and how you personally identify. Um, so that means feminine and masculine or in between um, or none of the above. But basically I'm looking at whether or not you fall on that binary or if you don't fall in that binary and how people have reacted to that with gendered language. Right. Yeah, I've, um, I've heard um, people refer to gender now as a, a spectrum. I've heard mm-hmm. it more and more frequently. And that idea that there's not just the this extreme and this extreme, right. there's all this in between. Right. And above and below and beyond. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that our... The, the ways in which we speak about it hasn't really caught up to it. You know, we have a lot of different labels, which is fantastic for people to be able to say, this is me, um, and I can find other people who are like me because they also are using that label. Um, but in terms of, like, the gendered language I'm looking at, it really places people on that hard binary and kind of expects them to say you need to be more feminine or more masculine because I assume you're presenting in this way. Right. So to do this research and in in-person inter- interviews and surveys, um, to work with human subjects, you need to go through certain um, uh, precautions. Is that uh, right? the right word for it? Or, or some format um, to make sure that everyone's Um, consenting and safe to be in this research. Yes, absolutely. Here at Oregon State, you have to go through an entire process called the uh, Internal Review Board, which is uh, anytime you're working with human subjects, be that just asking them questions about their personal life or collecting um, physical samples or working with DNA, whatever it is, um, you have to get this approval by the research board. Um, So I had to go through that whole process and they kind of tweaked things here and there to say we don't want to put any of your participants at risk, um, either at risk of being identified too easily or at risk of uh, any sort of harm. So we had to think about the ways in which people could be um, emotionally harmed or triggered or... um, the ways in which they might even benefit from this study as well was was one of the factors to go into it. So my entire thing from top to bottom, the consent form, the questions, the ways in which I'll ask those questions has been um, laid out and looked at 10 times over. Yep. With a fine tooth comb, make yes. sure that the yes. university is not going to get in trouble and you're yes. not going to get in trouble for anything. Exactly. Cool, cool. Yeah. yeah. So uh, how long was this process? Um, the process started in 
late June last year. So it's been about six and some months. Um, and the initial feedback takes the longest for them to say, okay, yes, we're going to go ahead and like give you suggestions on how this study could be approved later on in the process. Is there like a, a kind of, it seems like submitting for publication, is there like a hard no in that first round or is it always here, like you can tweak these things and this sounds... There could be a hard no. If you're saying I want to interview children without their parents' consent, <laughs> okay. that's probably going to be a hard no. Um, so things like that in which it's like completely unethical, they yeah. would they would totally give you a hard no. In other cases where you're saying I'm working with people who can consent um, and here's the safety measures I've put in place, they'll say, okay, I, I see what's happening here. We just need to make it more safe, more um, take it out of our hands to say we won't be put at risk for this as well. Yeah. So I suppose uh, working with people at a university, you were saying, uh, are considered a, uh, what is it, a vulnerable population. Right. And why yeah. would that be, do you think? I think that if you if you think about some of the studies that have been done in the past, especially like scientific and academic studies, they have been on students, student populations in the first place, and they're considered an at-risk or vulnerable population because they're so accessible and because they are the main population in which researchers are going to target in the first place. Um, and I think that institutions as well think of their constituents or students as vulnerable. They because they are part of the institution in the first place. Yeah. So maybe they're participating in these studies all the time and yeah. could be affected by that, uh, especially some of some studies that maybe are dealing with this uh, gendered language or something that might have led to a poor experience in the past for this sure. person. Or I don't know. I was even thinking like, oh, if someone found out and my grades were affected by this or something. Right, or, right, exactly. Yeah, that's one of the, the huge things that the IRB process attempts to do is um, clarifies all of that language within consent documents saying your grades will not be affected, your relationships with your teachers will not be affected, your status as a student here will not be affected no matter what you say in this study and no matter what you um, what the effects of this study are in the first place. Cool. Yeah. Well, if you want to participate in Gina's study, she actually has a link out that we have posted on our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. And it is the newest post there at the bottom or in the middle. Also, you'll find the link to participate in the study if you're over 18 and English speaker and just have the time to mm -hmm. give as much detail <laughs> as possible. Right. Yeah. Because your survey was approved. Yes. It yes. was yes. approved. We're live. Yeah. Last <laughs> exactly. week. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was just two, yeah, a week and a half ago, something like this. Perfect yeah. timing. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So, and tell your friends because you always need uh, more, I guess, male participants, especially, right? Yeah. Um, cool. It seems to be that, I mean, uh, I'll take anyone, you know, of course, <laughs> as a researcher, I want, I want anyone and everyone who wants to, wants to do this. Um, but it's, it's great to have a variety. And so far I'm seeing that, um, there's a lot of women and non-binary folks that are willing to participate and not as many dudes. Right. Yeah. 
All right. So uh, I want to know, how did you get interested in looking and working with gender language in the first place? Right. That's a great question. Um, <laughs> it may not have actually been like a single moment, you know. But. Right, right. <laughs> I think that one of the main reasons I became so interested in gender studies in the first place was because of some of these experiences I've had with gendered language um, in my life. And I think that as a queer woman, cis woman in the first place, um, I had to think about what those gendered phrases really meant to me if I wanted to be a tomboy, if I was trying to fall outside of the gender binary, or if it was just in that I am queer, I was falling outside of that in the first place. I think that there's a lot of um, presumed heterosexuality that comes with these gendered phrases, mm -hmm. especially things like... Mm, oh, well, I think, uh, I think a lot about how you should act and perform femininity it goes along with performing straightness as well. Um, so that's, that's kind of where it came from, was just my own personal experience in coming, coming through and coming by these phrases in, in my life. Mm -hmm. We find that, I find that a lot of folks, uh, especially in the humanities at Oregon State that we talk to on this show and in other, in other times, uh, that they kind of, like you're saying, you, you are your research or, or like your research yeah. has been strongly influenced by, uh, by your personal experience rather than maybe uh, interest in, in, you know, some, in like a tsunami applied, <laughs> in an applied field more right. so, you know, uh, more like an experience like you're talking about. Um, but uh, you had some experiences outside of the United States and uh, I was wondering if kind of any experiences there influence your research as well. Right, exactly. I was just thinking about that because one of the one of the things that I really started thinking about while I was abroad, I lived in Thailand where I taught English for a year and some, and then I've been living in the Czech Republic for the past three or four years um, with my partner. And uh, I noticed the ways in which people use English swear words and English uh, vocabulary um, without context. Mm -hmm. I, and with context. So it was just especially um, ways in which, like I think American English language has spread throughout the world and it's used so commonly, and especially the swear words, <laughs> especially the swear words. Um, so I, I kind of thought about that. Can you take away the power of words by not knowing their context or do they still hold that power to the listener? Um, so that was one of the main ways I, I really started thinking about language. And then in terms of living abroad and seeing the ways in which you can kind of broaden the gender binary, I thought about how in Thailand there's a third gender recognized um, called the Kaitui. And um, quite a few of my students actually identified this way and um, they were fantastic and flamboyant and really wonderful, but they're still not fully accepted by the society. Like even though they're legally recognized as this gender, um, they're not actually able to wear what they want to work or 
um, have hair longer than, you know, a certain length. So, you know, in the States, even though we do have this kind of strict binary, um, and we look over there and we try and say, look, this is more liberal. Well, it would be, it could be, but it doesn't necessarily mean it is that way yet. Right. Yeah. So, um, your study, you're focusing, your participants, you're looking for people who speak English because you're focusing on these English phrases, but right. they don't necessarily need to be native speakers because this, right. um, this is part of what you're trying to look at is actually yeah. the cultural context of um, a native English speaker um, versus someone who is learning right. um, maybe a little later on in life or maybe they learned mm -hmm. it early on. Mm -hmm. But that's yeah. all pieces of the puzzle. Exactly. So, so both in my survey and my interview, I ask, is English your first language? If not, what is? Um, and if not, how long have you lived in a place in which English was the primary language spoken? Because um, I think that people who have had a smaller amount of experience with English being the primary language spoken are going to be... I actually don't know. I'm interested to find out. What, what is that going to mean to, to my research, and does it, does it mean anything, or are people going to come across these phrases no matter what? Like, how, uh, how likely is it that they're out there all the time already? And so why why get a master's in women, gender, and sexuality studies? Because you can do these surveys? Like, because you want to do this kind of study? I think that I mostly thought about what's, what's going to keep me interested and occupied for two years. Yeah. I knew I wanted to get a, a master's degree um, just because I, I like being in school. It's a comfortable space for me to be in, as, and especially here in the Northwest where I grew up. Um, But I think that being overseas and thinking about kind of like context and language and how that fits together and creates social space and um, and really like forms cultural ideologies, uh, women and gender and sexuality studies happens to be a place in which you're like so free to research whatever you want in whatever context you want without it necessarily being confined to it has to be a completely scientific study and have uh, have numbers attached to it. Um, I think that they're just more free to say lived experience is valid and is research and is where theory begins. Um, so that was the main reason I thought this would be a great place to do that kind of research in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Have there been other uh, studies in the past that have done something similar? Like I'm sure... Uh, right. There's been a lot of thought about gendered language, but uh, is this uh, going to be new for our time and for, for our place? I think that there's been a lot of studies, um, studies on personal experience and personal, you know, ways in which we live in the culture that kind of has these strict rules of heterosexuality and, and binary gender roles. Um, as well as I think I draw a lot from, from critical race theory that has done a lot of research on ways in which racist language affects people and actually contributes to, you know, 
difficult situations, life experiences. Um, so I'm kind of pulling off of that and saying, actually, gendered language could do that, could do that too. Um, but then I lost my train of thought. Uh, right. <laughs> so I think uh, what you're getting at is that, you know, if if you're always hearing these these words like uh, girls aren't good at math or mm. you know you're throwing like a girl, which implied that maybe you're not good at sports, right. then it's like reinforcing your idea about yourself. Like, yeah. you are a girl, and maybe you haven't explored that yet, but you have this idea of what you're supposed to be, and then it's just going to keep affecting you and like maybe steering you toward this, you know, binary identity right. that maybe is not very clear mm. <laughs> for you. <laughs> I think that that's, that's a big thing too, is the steering of, of your performance of what you should be doing or should not be doing based on what gender you are or what gender you're presenting as. And I think that that's really restricting to a lot of people. Um, and you can see that with the numbers of, of women in math or the numbers of men in art. And I think that there's a lot of um, people who are discouraged um, from what they actually love to do. And that's, that's an issue in and of itself. But also I think that when you're saying, especially to a boy, like, don't throw like a girl, um, number one, that is implying that girls aren't good at sports. And number two, it implies you don't want to be a girl. So what is that actually saying to boys about girls in the right. first place? Mm -hmm. And yeah. all of that. Yeah. So what about after master's? What's next? That's also a great question. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I definitely, well, I want to be with my current partner and he's in Prague. So I'm going to move to Prague and see what I can do in my field there. Um, they have a gender studies program at their university as well. It would be nice to, uh, get involved with that or see what other kind of nonprofits and um, organizations are happening there to to think about gender in the ways that we're thinking about it here or to progress. Again, there's a gender wage gap there as well to progress standing in society for for people who are not men, basically, mm -hmm. in the first place. So that would be that would be great. Right. So you also mentioned you're from the Pacific Northwest? Right. Uh, where are you from? I'm from Pullman, Washington, originally. Okay. Did yeah. you go to WSU? I did not. I went to Western Washington University and went to a tiny college called Fairhaven College um, that was very similar to a women, gender, and sexuality studies program, except for not quite so um, specific. It was a interdisciplinary liberal arts school so you really got to pick and choose exactly what you wanted to study and combine those things into your own concentration and basically make your own major which was fantastic wow i don't know if like as an 18 year old i would be able to that sounds like, <laughs> like a lot you know i guess right. there's some some requirements that you need to have but right. that would be hard to craft exactly what i wanted yeah it it actually, I mean, it took me until my third year, which is when you actually have to solidify it and write it and say, what have I done up to this point? Um, and what do I want to kind of be my main focus going forwards? Um, 
And that's when I found something called somatic psychology, which is psychology of the body and the mind, um, in which I started looking at, okay, how is gender performed and how is it expected to be performed in our bodies and the ways we move and the ways we dress and act. Um, so I kind of combined those two things and made a major out of it. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that is cool. And so uh, what was your major? What, what was the name of it? It was called... <laughs> Gender Studies Through Somatic Psychology and Creative Expression. The right. creative expression was uh, lots of my own writing and photography and reflections on on those sorts of experiences as well. And did you have like a final project to seal it all, stitch it all together? Right, and- right, yeah. I, I put on a gallery showing of my photography in which I was trying to think about the ways in which bodies are interacting with spaces and places and um, again kind of thinking about these combinations of um, how race and how gender and how class and um, intersections of identity are working together within specific locations Um, and the the gallery was just fun it was just fun to be like friends come see my my artwork and see what I've been working on for a little while yeah yeah. Was it nerve-wracking? It was. It was a bit. Um, but Bellingham, Washington, where, where I went to school, has such a great art community. So I, I was able to find a wonderful gallery to put up my artwork and have it there for, I think I had it there for a week or two. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it was great. So now in your master's, you've kind of got the other side of the coin. where Or no, maybe not the other side of the coin, but... Another slice of the of the story with <laughs> right. gender and another like perspective of how uh, certain things about society are shaping who we are. Right. Yeah. Cool. Well, we're getting around to the end of our end of our show and we have two traditions that we always like to keep to. And so the first tradition is to ask uh, you for your advice and it can be for anyone. So tell us who your advice is for and what is your advice? Hmm. Okay. Um, well, my advice is for everyone, I think. Um, and my advice is basically to think about what words you're using and who you're actually pointing out um, in using that language. And I think that it's so easy, especially with swear words, to um, kind of point as somebody as wrong. Um, swear words or ableist words... Um, and homophobic words, especially to say like, these bodies are wrong, these people don't belong. And a lot of these identities are invisible. So you don't know who you're saying it to or in front of, maybe you're discouraging somebody from disclosing their identity in the first place to you. So I just think it's important to think about the language you're using and thinking, think about not only your intention in using that, but the effect that it's having on the people that you're speaking to. Very good advice. Yeah, that's great. And very relevant to your study. Um, And before our last tradition, I'll remind the listeners again that uh, this is Inspiration Dissemination. We're talking to Gina Moody, and she is conducting a survey about how gendered language affects us. And you just go on, you look at the questions, give your personal experience to to the best of your ability, and she uses that for her research. It's anonymous. Yes. So we will hopefully from this learn a little bit about how these words that we use are affecting people, uh, especially um, 
you know, this sample of the population at least. Uh, so uh, with that, our next tradition is to ask you to provide a song as your outro to kind of close uh-huh. out the show. And so uh, what what is the song that you picked and uh, why have you selected it? That's a good question. Um, I picked this song. What is it called? The Fog. <laughs> the Fog. <laughs> the Fog by the Overcoats. Okay, that's perfect. It was so foggy out today. Yeah. Um, the Fog by Overcoats because um, I noticed in this version um, that they say intersectional feminism is the future, and I thought that that was that was so cool. Um, and the Overcoats are just an amazing group in and of themselves, and. I think it I think it fits well with my theme and the theme of today and the outdoors and yeah. Perfect. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks so much Gina for yeah, coming thanks, on Gina. the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, this is Inspiration Dissemination, where a show we talk to graduate students every Sunday at 7 p.m. So tune tune in to 88.7 KBVR to hear more from graduate students, their stories, and about their lives in graduate school. Uh, Now we're going to play The Fog uh, by The Overcoats, which was a request of our guest, Gina Moody. And thank you all for listening, and thank you, Gina, again. Thanks. Take